Um, I'm a physicist studying biology in the chemistry department. <laughs> and I use computers. Okay, so uh, can iPods grow on trees? Anyone want to have a, an answer? Go. No. Correct. They cannot grow on trees. It's a ridiculous question. Absolutely absurd. So why am I asking? Well, because we need to be really imaginative. We are screwing up the planet. Something wrong. We need to fix it. And I've been thinking about this kind of ideas for 10 years. How can we look at the way that biology makes things, and we're going to learn from biology that we could possibly make things even as advanced as iPods using biological techniques, okay? And to understand why that's the case, why is biology the way that it is, what makes it special, that helps to take a step back and think about Earth as a single system. Now, Earth is up there in space, spinning on its axis all by itself. There's a vast amount of energy coming in from the sun, absolutely vast amount of energy, 100,000 terawatts. Does anyone know how much energy humans use on this scale in terms of terawatts? Any guesses? Right now, it's about 15. Right? There's 10,000 times more energy coming from the sun than we need. So it's just pointless using fossil fuels. We might as well use sun, sunlight. And in fact, it's coming up from under the ground. There's a huge amount of energy just from geothermal. Uh, 45 terawatts is more than enough. But so the entire planet is completely awash with energy. It comes in from the sun, all the clothes that you have, all different colours. Why are they different colours? Well, because they're interacting with light. Yeah? All that energy coming in from the sun sets molecules oscillating and moving around and bashing them about. They start to vibrate and you get different colours as molecules vibrate. So the fact that your clothes have different colours just shows you how much energy there is just around. Now biology's figured out how to capture that energy and hang on to it. Uh, and we're not that good at doing that. Uh, what happens to all that energy? Well, it goes up to space. So any, you can't just create or destroy energy. It comes in and then it goes away. Uh, and that energy is either captured and stored on Earth or not. So you get this high intensity energy coming from the sun, like blue light, red light, and then it gets converted into infrared radiation. So each photon going out has less energy. And it's that conversion from high intensity photons to low intensity photons that you can use to change things. Okay? So it's just the, the fact that this energy is changing form that gives us our power. And there's far more of it than we need. And of course, because all that energy is coming in and it's going out, you reach this nice equilibrium temperature, all these molecules oscillating, you get this nice equilibrium temperature, and that temperature depends on materials. So why am I telling you all this? Well, because the temperature of the Earth depends largely on what it's made from. And that shifts the focus away from energy to materials. And it's materials that I want to talk about today. How are we going to make materials in the future to have functionality that we can use to build iPod, iPhones, so on. So let's think about mass. I mean, there's nothing else on Earth apart from energy and matter. Right? And it's closed with respect to mass. What do I mean by that? I mean, there's not much matter falling into the Earth. The odd meteorite, the odd asteroid every however many hundred thousand years. The mass of the Earth at this epoch is more or less constant. And that means we've got so much hydrogen, so much helium, so much lithium, so much beryllium, carbon, nitrogen, all the rest of it. So as well as a carbon footprint, you've got a platinum footprint and a rubidium footprint. And we've got nothing else apart from what's here on Earth and the energy coming in from the sun. So that means we have, we have to intercept that energy flow from the hot sun to the cold <coughs> depths of space. And the only thing you can do, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter whether you're 
President of the United States, or whether you're street sweeper, whoever the hell you are, the only thing you can do on Earth, a company, academic, whatever, is reorganise matter using energy. There's nothing else you can do on Earth because there is only matter and energy here. So when we reorganise matter, what are we doing? We're changing its shape. We're putting information into it. And that's what biology is all about. It's about how information in material affects its properties in the flow of energy in the environment. And that's what I want to think about today. So how does biology deal with this situation? Well, if we imagine a Petri dish, which has just got a whole bunch of bacteria in it, what's going to happen to these bacteria? They've got some food. Anyone? Sorry? Louder? They're going to multiply. And then what? Well, once they've multiplied a lot and they've eaten all the food, then what? Right, except bacteria don't really die. They just stop working. They just kind of stop. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. They'll just go dormant until someone adds some food or they just sit there. So how, that's, that's, I just said biology can cope with this situation, but that doesn't sound like it's coping with it. So what else can biology do? Well, to solve that conundrum, biology is split into two. Okay? On the one hand, you have these things called autotrophs, which grab all that energy from the sun and they manufacture food. And on the other hand, you have all these heterotrophs, which come along and eat the, the autotrophs. But what the heterotrophs do is they turn all that waste back into soil again. Okay? So you have this material, which is just going backwards and forwards, round and round and round and round and round, and it's driven by sunlight. And any organism whose fuel runs out will die. So you're left with only the organisms, you know, the ones that keep going and going and going and propagating are the ones that survive. All the ones whose fuel runs out die. So after five billion, three billion years of evolution, you know, you end up with a, an ecosystem where everything's being recycled. And that's critical point about biology. It's not just cells, it's cells operating in a planet, not exceeding the planetary boundary conditions at the ecosystem level. In fact, they terraform the Earth so that it reaches a nice equilibrium. <coughs> so here's a kind of representation of that. Start off with soil, all the energy goes in, and all the different creatures coming along, chobbling it all up. You know, one of the, one of the most energy-intensive processes in our industry is grinding because we like to start with pure materials. So what is it that does all the grinding in biology? Can you guess it? Sorry? Yeah, teeth, yeah. Uh, back to there, little insects. Next time you're walking in the jungle, just think about where the wood. Just think about, <laughs> you know, how many leaves have been broken up, how many insect mandibles that have co-evolved to work with the materials that biology produces to chop things up. It's kind of cool. Oh, the way we make things is ridiculous by comparison. We take a lump of stuff out of the ground, Heat it up, put a huge amount of energy in, put the spikers, and then we let it cool down. Remember, our budget is the energy coming in from the sun and then dissipating out of space. We are so wasteful at all, you know, you've seen all these pictures of foundries, just letting a concrete, a uh, steel bar just cool down. Just letting that energy go up into space, not using it. So in fact, there's two ways of making material uh, represented by this. One is what I'd call an equilibrium way, and one is a non-equilibrium way. So at this point, I want you to think about the surface of a river. Right, you have all this energy rushing down through the river, and it can take on a shape where the rocks are, and it all falls around it, and you get this non-equilibrium shape. But you can't pick that shape up, you can't scoop it out the surface of the river and hold it. It would just collapse, right? Doesn't make sense. There's that dynamic shape. Whereas what we do is we heat things up, let them cool down, and then they become solid. And that's how we get the shape. So this chair, for example, is just solid. Two very different ways of making shapes. 
And what biology's learned to do with just these five key polymers, proteins, RNA, DNA, is kind of making slightly more thick fluid. You know, water's too runny. So if you make it more viscous, then you get lipids and cells, like fluidy, gooky stuff. But it can hold its shape a bit better, and that's exactly what you are. You are dynamic materials formation process. You have to keep putting energy in, so you're like a thick, gloopy river, okay? With this food coming in, keeping the energy going, and your body's figured out how to get that energy and maintain its shape. And that is called autopoiesis. That's what that fancy name for that is. Something that's shape that can maintain itself in a non-equilibrium situation. So I'm thinking, well, that's what we need to do in our manufacturing. And then we can have self-repairing materials. We have buildings that build themselves. We can have cars that repair themselves. All kinds of stuff. So this is the key thing, non-equilibrium materials and equilibrium materials, and these are far more wasteful. Okay, so, so how does biology do that? How does it handle it? Well, it doesn't matter which side of the autotroph, heterotroph divide you are, they're all based on the same system. It doesn't matter if you have fungus or a pig or a tree, you're all based on cells, uh, and that's the central dogma. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to dive down into the molecular level. So we've started off with a planetary scale, thought about how materials get reprocessed, and we're going to dive right down there to the molecular scale, to natural nanotechnology. We're going to think about the central dogma. So, does anyone reckon, recognise this? Ribosomes? Huh? I think of this as a 3D printer. Right? Well, that's insane. But what does a 3D printer do? Well, it's a printhead and it has a feedstock, and I give it a sequence of instructions, and it follows those instructions and it adds material <coughs> to the workpiece over and over and over again. You know, as I send these instructions, one instruction after another, and I build up the shape that I want. Yeah? This is a molecular 3D printer. We have the instructions in the DNA, they get sent to the print head, which is this ribosome, and then in the soup <coughs> around the outside, there's all these amino acids, that's the feedstock, and the ribosome can construct a protein that pulls amino acids out of the soup and builds a protein. And if it works, uh, I should have a little video. In fact, oh, that's not yet. So, hang on. Sorry, I got confused. Um, so just think about protein. We've got these amino acids. There's 20 different amino acids that protein uses. Right? I said before that it's all about putting information into material, and this is the information sequence that you get. And like I said, 20 different amino acids compiled into different sequences. Now remember all that energy coming from the sun, making everything jiggle around all the time. It's like oceans of energy, waves after waves going through matter, shaking around. So what's going to happen when I build this protein into a sequence, into a string? Any ideas? Some of you know. I know some of you know. What's going to happen? Take a guess. I'll give you an example. All right, if this is my string, this is my string, and you see all those different colors, they might represent different amino acids. So if I stretch it out, stretch it up, and then let go of my foot, what's gonna happen? It's gonna ping up, right? And did you see how, when it pinged up, it took on a particular shape? Now if I do it again, is it gonna take the same shape? Because there's actually bajillions of ways of arranging it when it's folded up. So when it, whenever it's jiggling, you put energy in. That's what I'm doing by stretching it. I'm putting energy in. And then as it jiggles around, it will find a particular shape. And all the different bits of information, the amino acids, as it folds, they'll interact with each other in different ways. 
So this yellow, red one here might affect the blue one in a different way, and that one. And so ultimately, when it folds, we're folding to a particular shape. Every different protein has a different native state. So we can start to control with the information in the amino acid sequence what shape of an object that we're building using our 3D printer. And all these different shapes are going to have different functions in biology. And I'm going to give you some examples of those in due course. So just to sort of whet your appetite, have a look at this. This is a, an animation of the ribosome building a protein. And the star of the show is this blue fella up here. Here's my pointer. You've got this amino acid, this white blob, on the end of this tRNA molecule. It's made from RNA. And we have this big long sequence of RNA that's locked inside the ribosome. And the end of the tRNA, the blue bit, remember everything's jiggling all the time. It's all driven by Brownian motion. The end of that likes the sequence on the RNA. If it likes it, it stays there a bit longer. Long enough for the amino acid to, to add on to another amino acid, which is coming in from the second RNA. So if it's a good match, it'll stay there longer than if it's a bad match. And you get the second amino acid, which comes up, adds on to the first. And every now and again, you'll see a flash. That's energy. So we've got e energy being provided by chemical reactions. We've got matter, and we've got information, the molecular scale. And then we get these other proteins that come along and start ratcheting it along, elongation factors. And they move it along. Flashes, there's various flashes every now and again, you'll see them. Just keep a watch out for them. And then over time, we're going to you know, bring in another tRNA, and if it's the right one, it looks, it says, is it the right one? Yes. Stay there. No. Go away. And then it starts building up the sequence around the back, going really quickly. And then around the back, you'll get this sequence of amino acids building up, which is our protein. This is what happens inside your body. This is nanotechnology driven by information. 3D printing, nanoscales. It's kind of cool. And there's a protein. And this is it jiggling about and folding up. <coughs> Very cool. OK, so we have to think about Earth as a global system with quantum resolution. You know, if we're going to design a planet which isn't going to kill itself, we need to think like that. We need to think about every atom and every flow around the entire planet. We need to have a global protocol. In the same way that the autotrophs and the heterotrophs use the same underlying protocol, cells, maybe we should have a manufacturing protocol across the entire planet. How about that as a thought? Okay. All right. Um, so there's this important idea of emergence here. If I have one atom, it doesn't vibrate. If I have two atoms, I can have a vibration. It doesn't make sense to think about a vibration with only one atom. So a two-atom thing, a molecule, has properties that an individual atom can't have. And that concept is called emergence. You keep getting new emergences as they come up through the scales. So when we're thinking about networks, we've seen a folded shape of a protein. That's another kind of emergent property. But what about networks of proteins? They have new emergent properties. Would anyone like to hazard a guess of what? A network of proteins can do that a single protein can't. Given that, I'll give you a hint. It's all about information, right? What else uses information? I'll give you another hint. <laughs> all right. 
compute. A network of proteins can compute. A little cell is a computer. What's it doing? What's it computing? It's computing concentrations. You can think about all the different species of chemicals inside a cell and think about how many of each one there are. And it, all of these are controlled by proteins. The amount of, and you can think about that as a register in a memory where you know, it's a number. In a, if you have a memory in a normal computer, you can just have a number representing how many of each protein. Remember, adding and taking away. That's all you need to do computation. And that's what's happening inside a cell. So a cell is a computer, and a network of proteins can compute. Oh, that's interesting. And then we can keep coming up. And we start seeing all weird and wonderful things happening as a result of that programming, and so on. I mean, we could talk about any one of these scales for hours, but I'm just going to get that idea into your head. You get this idea of emergence, and then a global system where the things that happen at the top and the bottom are somehow connected, and all points in between are linked together. And that's something we don't have in our manufacturing. Uh, but fortunately, people are thinking about doing it, creating industrial ecologies where companies can learn how to trade waste with each other. So we don't waste anything. We don't pollute the atmosphere. We can start to think about autotroph companies, which are grabbing energy and making stuff, and heterotroph companies, which are taking those made things and reprocessing them back into input feedstocks. Both autotrophs and heterotroph companies doing sensible things with that material, economically valuable things. And people are beginning to start seeing that picture emerge. So. Years ago, I had this vision sitting in my office, and I was staring at a tree. And I was thinking, what about, you know, I was trying to think of ways to reduce carbon dioxide. And I was thinking, oh, there's all this transport. You know, when we make something, the way we make things, we, we make something, we move it, and then we process it, and then we move it. And very naively, I thought to myself, well, if we, if we could eliminate all that transport, there's a transport step, and every other step, if we could eliminate that, we'd re reduce CO2 emissions enormously. But is there anything else in the world? which can do raw material connection, manufacturing, assembly, provide a function, and it's waste disposal in situ. If you eliminate transport, you have to do everything in the same place. And of course, the answer is a tree. And at the time, iPods had just come out, and I was thinking, what if we could grow iPods on trees? That would solve so many problems. Great. So now you've had a sort of quick primer in why biology is the way that it is and why it'd be really cool if we could grow iPods on trees. Let's think about how to make an iPod. How do you make an iPod? You need a bunch of different components. You know, you need a case, display, some sort of interface, control logic, energy, somewhere to store the memory. What does an iPod do? Would anyone like to define what an iPod does? Plays music. Yeah? Play games. Uh, it's true, yeah. Well, what you can do, well, I, the way I define it, it's a portable system for turning memory into sound. Okay? And it could be for turning it into games as well. For turning it into sound. Portable system for turning memory into sound. Uh, in fact, it's not that difficult to do. When I first started giving this talk, I thought it would be lovely to have an iPod that I could just smash open and show you the bits. And I wrote to Apple and they weren't like, they didn't even reply. And I was like, well, hang on a minute. I said, can you send me the schematics at least? And they were like, again, didn't even reply. So, uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. So I went and looked and found these people. These people have made an MP3 player, and they're happy to give us the schematics. These are a group of people called sort of makers, hackers, whatever. You know, and you can go and find all these projects and learn how to build these things yourself. And so this is a schematic for an MP3 player, broadly similar to an iPhone. 
And it looks complicated, but it isn't really. We've got our memory. We've got a controller, which pumps the information from the memory to this uh, digital to analog converter. Turns that digital information into a sound or a voltage, which drives the headphone. So that's the hard bit. This bit over here is just, you know, the screen monitors the state of the control system, and then you can change the state of the control system with the user. So this feedback loop is completed by the user. And all you're doing is choosing which bit of memory you're replaying. It's really straightforward. This is the power supply. And as far as I can work out, this whole section down here is just making sure that the right uh, the LED comes on when you're printing the answer. <laughs> so that, you know, th this is the hard bit. All wrapped up inside the microchips, of course. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to take each of these key components, and I'm going to show you what the biological equivalent, the biological equivalent of that component is. Okay? So let's look at a power supply. This is a biological power supply. Circuit diagram. We start with sugar. Actually, NADH, which is a derivative of sugar, and oxygen. So that sugar and oxygen forms a battery. We know what happens when we set fire to sugar. It burns, right? Produces water and carbon dioxide. So that's all that's going on here. We're burning sugar in oxygen, but we're doing it in a clever way. We're using enzymes to pull the electron out of the sugar. So we're controlling where that reaction happens. And then we can use the energy from that electron to do something funky. In this case, we drive a pump. All right? What's it pumping? Well, it pumps hydrogen ions, protons, from the center of this mitochondria into this gap here, this membrane. We get these H plus ions pumped across that membrane. And as we increase the concentration of hydrogen here, well, protons, we build up an electromotive force. We get an electric field built up across that membrane. And that electric field drives a motor. And that motor has these two mechanical arms grabs ADP, adenosine diphosphate, and a phosphate, sticks them together to make ATP. And that's what we get. ATP is the energy currency that the biology uses. So this is the sort of electric circuit, if you like, for a mitochondria. And we can go into that in some more detail. Remember that all these proteins are doing is just different information sequences of amino acids and lots of Brownian motion. And what's happening they take on different shapes that allow them to interact with different molecules. You can pull an electron out, and that electron hops, it tunnels using quantum mechanics. It tunnels, bom, 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 all the way over here, and gets dropped on the O2. Okay? There's some different steps in the middle, which I'll show you. And then you form the water. And there's, so this is a kind of a biological electric circuit. This is how biology does electronics. But instead of having wires, I mean, metal wires are really expensive in terms of energy. Like, you need a lot of energy to make a metal wire. So it doesn't use a lot of metal. It does use some metal, as we'll see in a moment. So instead of having wires that connect stuff, it uses a shape in a molecule. So this quinone here gets uh, reduced by these enzymes. So the electron hops onto the quinone, and the quinone acts like a connector. The quinone diffuses between these different complexes and <coughs> shuttles the electron all the way across. Kind of cool. And at this point, it's pumping, each of these big things pumps, complexes they're called, pumps hydrogen ions across, and you build up this electromotive force. And you remember way back when, when I talked about the soil and the sun, and in the background there's an arrow, that green arrow, and that's showing you how energy is used. Every organism grabs the energy from the things that are around it. This is where biology dissipates that energy up into space, each of these jumps. This represents the energy of the electron. At each point, you use a bit of the energy 
to do something else. So biology is really good at hanging on to energy and using it. Whereas when we make things, we let all that energy go back up into space. Biology, at the molecular level, grabs onto it. And this is how it does it. Very cool. So we build up this hydrogen proton motive force, the ADP and the phosphate come in here. We get this motor spinning around, ATP synthase. And that adds the phosphate onto the ADP and you get ATP shuttled out. Really cool. Really cool though, if in your house you would power your TV with sugar. Well, you'd have to feed the TV as well as the kids, right? <laughs> That'd be kind of cool. But then, what if you could? Why does biology go to all this hassle? Why does it just use sugar? Why does it use ATP? And the answer is here, right? If you want to change your fuel, all you have to do is change the protein. You don't have to change the <coughs> bit. You only have to change the bit that supplies the electron. So you can change your fuel. So this one here, we all know what happens when you do too much running and you get out of breath, you get you know, um, anaerobic respiration and you build up lactic acid. That's two different ways of getting energy. If you're using more energy than your body can get from normal respiration, you start a secondary process where you can start to eat up bits of your body and it, and it powers you for a short time, keeps you going. So all we have to do, it's like a Swiss army knife. We can just change the tool at the front with a new enzyme and get a different fuel. So if we're thinking about this process of material recycling, well, instead of feeding the TV sugar, we can feed it all that cardboard that we throw away as packaging. Maybe we could change it so it metabolizes a different fuel and then we can live in our house. We could use our waste products, maybe a solar panel on the roof to add energy back into the system, and then some process for creating the fuel locally. And then we could just survive as a little ecosystem inside our own house without having a bin lorry or without going to the shops. You just, once you've got the matter and you've got the energy, it's a question of rearranging it to make specific things. And this is how you do it. Really cool. And this is, this is the cool bit. I say, so biology does use metal. The electron hops from little iron clusters to other iron clusters uh, using quantum tunneling. Hop, 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 hop. Very cool. So, interesting. And does it work? What's the power output of one of these things? Turns out it's reasonably comparable, about one watt per cubic centimetre to a, a very old, old, this is an old style lithium ion battery. And it's roughly the same size in terms of energy input and energy density. Very cool. So that's power supply. Now, I've gone into that in quite a lot of detail. The other ones aren't quite as much depth. You'd be pleased to know. Memory. What about memory? Well, that's cool. Typical MP3, six megabytes. One song would be about 25 million base pairs. Human genome is about three times 10 to 11 base pairs. This information is slightly out of date. That's three times 10 to the nine. But there are some plants that have lots of, about this as many base pairs. I've just realized, sorry, I should have changed the slide. Uh, what that means is one cell could store about 17,000 songs, if that was the number of base pairs inside a cell. It's a bit less than that. Uh, and that means two cells could store 200 gigabytes worth of information. Two cells. I mean, think about it. Imagine if the room around us could store that much information. You could store the entire internet in this room. No problem. No problem at all. So that molecular, the information density in biological stuff is really high. But of course, there's a flip side. It's quite slow to read. So we've got to 
you know, there's always a trade-off. So could we build such a sequencer? And that's what people are doing now. They're trying to get really, really fast DNA sequencing so they can get the information out of DNA really quickly, and that cost is plummeting. And they use that for health purposes, but I'm thinking, uh, straight up, we want to cool stuff, right? All right. You could store the world's entire recorded music collection in an app. Every movie in the world in an apple. Think about it. It's facts. Okay, so that's memory. No problem with memory. Loads of different types of memory. What about control logic? This is the hard one. This is the hard. I already said that a network of proteins is a computer. So there's this hierarchical assembly where we have these pathways, which are like the, the code that runs you know, on the hardware of all the molecules. And that gives functions that add up together to create large-scale organization and behavior. And what, he, what we're doing at the moment is this thing called synthetic biology. This is a new paradigm in which we're trying to apply engineering principles to biological processes. We're trying to standardize all these different things so that by using DNA, by reprogramming DNA, we can build functioning devices in biological systems. That's already starting to happen. But you can see the benefit of doing that. If our technology becomes closer to biology, then we're going to align <coughs> the planetary requirements for our technology and the biology. Right? You follow? The more our technology becomes like biology, the more we as humans and the more economics needs the planet to support biology. So that's my argument, a strategic argument, for thinking about using biotechnology. And the reality is, of course, we have to try a lot of different things, so that's just one approach. And it means perhaps we ought not to be so scared of genetic engineering. So what can you do with genetic engineering inside a cell? I mean, it's a trade-off. It's a straight-up trade-off. Sustainability versus your aversion to GM. Choose. <laughs> right? I mean, these are the decisions that governments have to make and what you have to make as consumers in the long run when products like this start coming out. So, there was a group called an iGen team, International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition. Right? And they took a, an E. coli and they engineered it so that it had these sensors and a system for detecting. Well, what these sensors do is they detect specific chemicals in the soup around them. And depending on what they've detected, they express a different color dye internally. And then they have a system for saying, well, how much dye do I produce, which is proportional to the concentration of the analyte, the chemical going in. And then they engineered something which produced a particular pigment in response to that. So they could make it so the cell produced a different color, and not only just a different color, but a different intensity based on how much of a different thing there was. And I'll buy anyone a pint if they guess what they came up with as an application. <laughs> Any ideas? Or, or Coke? Just realised, I can't say. Any other thoughts? No? This is poo. <laughs> you take a yoghurt or something like that, a spoonful of E. coli in your gut, depending on what's happening inside, it will change the colour. So if you've got, like, you know, you know a little bit of a little bit of a t tummy upset, you know, whoops, wrong, wrong one. Might be the orange one, you do not want the purple one. Like <laughs> bowel cancer or something. But that could be an interesting diagnostic. And already I've seen a commercial proposal to get bacteria in your gut to produce tryptophan, which is one of these amino acids, but overproduce it. And that helps with depression. 
I'm not kidding. You could eat yogurt as a cure for depression with genetic engineering. That's a serious proposal. Okay. What other things can be done? Now, this is where we find out if we're going to deafen you. What I'm going to show you is a single cell, a white blood cell, reacting to an inflammation. And you're going to see the process inside the cell, only the things that are relevant to that process. These are the white blood cells. So there, there's a white blood cell detecting an inflammation, a signal went down inside the cell and told it to produce a different kind of protein, you saw all those ribosomes producing proteins, and then there was those walker proteins moving things back up to the surface, that big vacuole, which then got embedded in the membrane, and you see all the new proteins on the outside up here, sorry, there, more of proteins, and those proteins are able to grab on and stop. That's all the signal just to change what's on the surface so that it could stop. And also there was a signal to change all the filament structure so that it could go flat and then find the inflammation. Very interesting. And just to prove that wasn't made up, 
This is actual scientific data. So this is those, do you remember those tubules assembling? This is glowing tubules, actual recorded information where you can see the tip growing. And that's really what's happening inside your cell. Those little walker proteins moving along these tubules. What you're seeing, the, the green things here are the tips that grow. And then once they're, they're made, the walker proteins can move along the, uh, the red filaments that are left in the background. You can see the shape of the cell depends on where these things go. Really cool. That's the nucleus in the middle, the red blob. Okay, so that just proves that I'm not making this up, right? <laughs> Good. Okay, so right now at Microsoft, people are trying to develop new languages, programming languages, so that you could write code which describes the pathways inside your cell. And instead of compiling it in machine code and run it on a processor, you compile it in DNA and run it on a, in a bacteria. Okay? And that, what you're doing is programming pathways, and this is what's happening now in the world around us. Uh, very interesting. So that's how you do control. Okay? Quite complex. What about display and interface? Surely biology has never invented a TV screen. Huh? Well, there's plenty of options for emitting light in biology. Yeah? And in fact, you know, under the sea, if you were like a TV screen, you'd light up like a Christmas tree, wouldn't you? And you'd be eaten pretty quickly. In fact, you know, like, uh, you know, fish swimming around in, in the fork, in this, you know, under the seabed here. We've just got a blob of algae, you know, and these fish swimming around. So they'll be one along in a sec. And, um, you know, if you, you know, if you're a bright TV screen, you'd stand out and a predator would get you in no time at all. <laughs> so, pretty good idea to hide yourself. That's amazing, isn't it? And it got scared. And it gets all big. See the colours change. And it changes its colour and its texture. Now, I urge anyone who's interested in this to look up how this works, because it's unbelievably interesting. I haven't got time to explain it, but if anyone knows what Bragg diffraction is, there is a system with protein self-assembling in multiple layers, and then you can phosphorylate it and change the size of it, change the dynamic, the frequent the structural colours, dynamic structural colour, in part. There's other processes going on. But it can change the texture as well. <laughs> Just disappears. So I think if biology can do that, then we can make a biological screen with enough information on it to select a song, at least, even if it's not, you know, Star Wars in HD or whatever. But. Okay, so we can do screens. Sonic transduction, there's plenty of examples of sonic transduction. Like bat can produce chirps and control the sound wave and make it get information about its environment. Locusts have um, active membranes, they vibrate them actively. Mosquito antenna are active, they've been, they're generating a little bit of sound and they, that makes them more <coughs> resonant. So there's plenty of examples of mechanical, audio frequency mechanical oscillators in biology. Uh, minor bird is pretty good. Uh, so no problem sonic transduction. Mechanical support, this is the really the one I think that will get kicking first, if you like, in terms of technology. You know, wood, silk, bone. I'd be interested in looking more about coral. There's already a company that's producing synthetic silk to make clothes, bolt threads in the US, and there's one, there's one in Britain, and there's one in Japan as well, I think. But it'd be really cool to be able to make the shape of bone, like in a kind of dynamic way, rather than, you know, the way I described it, in a non-equilibrium way, to find the shape, like a 3D printer that was dynamic, somehow, you know how. 
And you know, as soon as you start applying materials and information processing, you can start to see how you can, with algorithms and materials, you can start to build different shapes. Mm. I mean, could we imagine a city made from mother of pearl? How amazing would that be? You know, awesome. So can it be done? Can we make this system, this portable system for turning memory into sound using biological stuff? I've shown you all the components. Can we pull it together? <coughs> and you know I wouldn't ask unless the answer was yes. Check this out. He could imitate the calls of at least 20 different species. He also, in his attempt to outsing his rivals, incorporates other sounds that he hears in the forest. That was a camera shutter. And again. And now a camera with a motor drive. And now the sounds of foresters and their chainsaws working nearby. <laughs> Again, I thought that was made up when I saw it on the internet. It's absolutely not the case. That is bona fide BBC footage of a lyrebird in Australia. Amazing creature. So there it is. We can think about Earth as a closed system, open to, closed to mass, open to energy. So we've got to get this energy and reprocess things. We can put information in materials to create this, dynamically alter the flow so we can get shape out. And if we do, do it cleverly, we can learn how to evolve in each other's waste streams so that we can reprocess all that matter but make it useful on both sides of that circle. And that would be a universal platform that would simplify the conversion to an industrial ecology, which is what we want, uh, so that we don't pollute the planet anymore, which would be very nice. Okay, so if biology can build an iPod, maybe biology can build a city as well. So thanks for listening. You guys have been great.